Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's January 1st, 1842, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. Happy New Happy Year. Happy New Year. Retrospectors. And uh, it's the beginning of a new year here on the show. It was also, of course, because this is how the calendar works, the 1st of January in 1842. New beginnings <laughs> for a building in New York, which called itself an American museum. Now, what do you think might be in an American museum? I think a reasonable guess might be authenticated objects of genuine interest from the Americas, but no, (laughs) because that building that opened today in history in 1842 in New York was Barnum's American Museum, established by the great humbug merchant, if you're being kind, con man, if you're not, greatest showman, but this is before he got into circus, P.T. Barnum. And so a lot of the exhibits were um, more freak show than museum. Yeah, well, I mean, what you were describing, you know, a museum of the Americas, the flora and the fauna, was what it had actually been at one point. It opened in 1791. And then when Barnum bought it from a guy called Scudder, the first thing he did was put his own name on the exterior in giant letters and then started adding his own exhibit, which led to this weird scenario where he'd kept some of the old ones. So you still had these world-class collections of fossils and specimens of different animals, but you also had things like a flea circus <laughs> and Siamese twins and what an 1866 advert described as a mammoth fat infant. <laughs> yeah, there was also Anna Swan, who is the towering giantess from Nova Scotia, who is dressed in 100 yards of satin and 50 yards of lace by Barnum himself. Also, there was the Fiji mermaid, which was purportedly a preserved maiden, but in reality, a fusion of, <laughs> get this, a desiccated monkey head and an orangutan's body affixed to a fish. But I think that part of what Barnum dealt in was the excitement that could be created around things that could generate a certain scepticism in the viewing public, Mm. which made them all the more appealing for people who just had to come down and decide for themselves if this was or was not, for example, a mermaid. Yeah, that feeling of, can this really be real? is like the presiding sensation you're supposed to feel. And I think sensation is the right word, isn't Mm. it? As you walk around Barnum's American Museum for 25 cents. I mean, it was affordable to get into. The museum, at its height, was attracting 4,000 visitors Mm. per day. Yeah, that kind of hucksterism was really the way that Barnum had got his start too. By this point, he was 31. He'd been in showbiz for about seven years. But he got his start by, and just a side note, Barnum was an absolute piece of shit. I mean, we've touched upon this in previous episodes involving Barnum. I was like, are you going to say he, racist? Honestly, are you going to say ethically dubious? Just, no, you just went straight for the jugular you, Honestly, you could say, if you started listing all the ways he was a horrible person, you'd be, there would just be the rest of the episode would just be a really, really depressing anecdotes. But he got his start by publicly exhibiting an elderly enslaved woman called Joyce Heth 
She claimed to be 161 years old and to have been George Washington's nurse. But to do this, not only did he exploit a loophole in New York's prohibition on slavery in order to lease Heth, so he actually owned her, when she died, which is probably as a result of the gruelling schedule he enforced on her, he turned her autopsy into a public spectacle because people had questioned, could she really be 161 years old? He then had her autopsied, you know, as a show that people could pay admission to. He really was an absolute scumbag. But you can see that right from the beginning of his career in showbiz, it was always... But he almost, he almost wasn't hiding that he was lying about things and inventing hoaxes. And he sort of played with that. And people, like you say, people responded to that. They wanted to come themselves, but that was all still money in his pocket. It kind of ties in with one of the features of the museum, which was that, you know, after you'd visited the Oyster Saloon or the Rooftop Garden, from which he launched a balloon every day, or the museum shop, where I'm sure you were encouraged to part with as much of your hard-earned as possible, you could go and have your beloved recently deceased pet taxidermied. So there was a place that you could get that done on site. He was so dedicated to not only showmanship but also making people part with their money that he had this one fabulous thing which was that he had signs around the museum that directed people this way to the egress and of course you know a lot of people who were coming there were poor migrants and they had limited vocabularies and they would have thought that the egress was some sort of fanciful you know exotic animal or beastie but actually they were being led to the exit and as soon as they went out of the door the door slammed behind them and the only way to get back in was to, to pay more money, money. Again, really yeah it's wow. just brilliant so and it also sort of you know because it was so popular it was new york's number one attraction for decades and consequently it was blocked up with visitors all the time so mm. it sort of served him to get some of them out to make room for new paying customers it's interesting as well talking about you know many of the visitors being migrants because of course it's in new york on the corner of broadway and ann street but many of the exhibits were as well and they weren't just fossilized people from around the world they were real live breathing people and Rebecca was talking about Joyce Heth this enslaved woman that was his first exhibit um, I mean it really was grim he, he pulled her teeth out so she looked older for example bearing in mind there's a woman he owned but then that kind of attitude to people of different skin colors and from different parts of the world continued the whole way through his career one of the things that made people freakish was simply really when you look at it from the lens of the 21st century that they weren't white and had bodily features that you'd associate with other parts of the world but he'd find a way to turn that into come and see the man with the extraordinary whatever you know i mean (laughs) uh we talked about chang and eng before the conjoined twins and you know part of what made them exotic was that they weren't white as well i think if they had been Mm. white americans it would have been a harder thing for visitors to just go and gawp at But he amalgamated all this stuff together, genuine uh, human specimens of scientific interest with just oddities, um, ephemera, uh, animals, things that are alive, dead, human. I mean, curiosities (laughs) is the right word, right? Yeah, one of the most famous was a guy called Charles Sherwood Stratton, who was a boy with dwarfism, who Barnum, again, kind of purchased from his parents um, and he taught him to sing and dance and do impressions of famous figures like Napoleon. He had all these miniature costumes made for him and then he exhibited him as General Tom Thumb and Stratton ultimately married another performer at the Barnum Museum, Lavinia Warren, who also had dwarfism. The wedding was turned into a media sensation. You can imagine how great this would have been for Barnum. Tiffany's gifted them with a miniature silver coach to ride in. They were invited to the White House to meet Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln and lovely old P.T. Barnum sold tickets to the reception for 
or $75. Well, this was the thing, that it was always about the show. You know, this museum itself had a lighthouse lamp that attracted attention up and down Broadway during the night and flags along the roof's edge that attracted attention in the daytime with giant paintings of animals between the upper windows, which drew attention from pedestrians. You know, he always had an eye on how he was going to be attracting people's attention and bringing them in. And he had over 800,000 exhibits in this place. I mean, I don't know how you fit that many things into the kind of space he had access to. But nevertheless, this whole enterprise turned him into one of the wealthiest men in the country and also a prominent figure in New York City. And it, of course, kind of launched his career as, you know, the, the kind of showman who eventually wanted to take this stuff on the road. Yes, and be legitimized. I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that he does buy a thing called museum. You know, he doesn't mm. call it gallery of weirdness. He, he does still call it a museum. And as you said, Rebecca, he takes Tom Thumb to the White House and also to perform for Queen Victoria in London. There's always this sense of wanting respectability, which is one of the few things that I think is actually accurate in The Greatest Showman. It does show that that desire, he brought the soprano over from Scandinavia didn't need to perform in the US that desire to be accepted by the establishment is happening simultaneously in this very kind of Victorian way I suppose it's happening simultaneously with being this hawker of just you know perverted sensationalism right <laughs> yeah I mean this, the sorts of things that were on display they ran such an incredible gamut you know we've touched on there was all fairground style attractions you could have a phrenologist analyze your skull there was a waxwork exhibit there was a seal called Ned who could apparently play the organ but <laughs> although it might sound completely random it was carefully calibrated to mix lowbrow and middlebrow yeah, attractions that would everybody. appeal to the lowest common mm. denominator I mean for him though the good times couldn't quite last because in 1865, this massive fire raged through the entire museum, destroying the whole thing. All of the employees were able to evacuate, but many of the animals in the building weren't so lucky, including the white whale that he had in, in an aquarium. Um, and some of the animals actually tried to jump out of the building, not the whales, I presume. No, they were boiled alive in their tanks. Yeah, right. But the, but the animals that tried to jump out were then shot by police officers, presumably that didn't want weird and wild creatures, including potentially mermaids running down the street. Did Barnum um, charge for tickets for that as well? I pre oh man, he must have tried. <laughs> Tomorrow. It's true that hard work never killed anybody, but I figured why take the chance? Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.